Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Karen Patel, who is a research fellow at Birmingham City University in the UK, about her new book, The Politics of Expertise in Cultural Labour, Arts, Work and Inequalities. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. Um, my, my pleasure. This is a, a great book. It's both really interesting, um, really speaks to our kind of current moment in terms of research on cultural production and, and inequality. Um, and it's also full of um, some really interesting kind of human stories, actually, which is something that um, can sometimes be uh, be left out in statistics on who works in creative occupations or, you know, who goes to um, cultural events um, or those, you know, I guess kind of more um, quantitative sociological uh, studies that have been been popular in the field. And I guess the, the place to start with the book is really with the title. You, you've got this particular interest in um, expertise. Um, and I'm very interested to know kind of um, partially what you mean by expertise, like what what's this? Uh, what's this idea about? And, and how come you wanted to sort of um, foreground expertise in, in your study of cultural labour? Yeah, well, um, I was interested in expertise from the very beginning of, of this research. Um, what does it mean? Uh, what does it entail? I think around the time I started uh, doing the research for this, you had Michael Gove coming out saying that everyone is tired of experts. And um, this book is based on my PhD. So in conversations with my PhD supervisor, Paul Long, um, we've, we started to unpick the term expertise and what it means. There was some interesting work by Calvin Taylor and Russell Prince about experts in cultural work. So I wanted to unpick this further in terms of what is the expertise of cultural producers because expertise as a term in any walk of life tends to be associated with authority specialist knowledge and quite often scientific or technocratic knowledge the the figure of the expert is seemingly at odds with the familiar figure of the artist the genius the bohemian and in the sort of existing work on cultural work that I was looking at, the experts that were talked about in that work tended to be associated with aesthetic judgment, cultural intermediation or policy making. And in, by and large, their status as experts was taken for granted. It wasn't really unpicked. They're assumed to be ex- the expert and, and thus have a degree of power and authority over an artist's career, which they do, of course. And this is illustrated in the work of Pierre Bourdieu, who I draw on quite a lot in, in this book, who talks about how artists are recognised and consecrated by those in power with expert knowledge in aesthetic codes and classifications. So... In the book, my focus is on the expertise of the artist because I wondered about what about the people who create those cultural works? What about their expertise? Why aren't they commonly known as experts? So that's what I wanted to unpick in this book. I was really interested in that practical expertise of creation 
How is it developed? What does expertise in creation entail? What are the challenges artists face when they develop their creative expertise? And mainly, what can a focus on expertise tell us about contemporary cultural work? So in chapter two, I go through a lot of the work which informs my understanding of aesthetic expertise, which is the term I use to refer to the practical creative expertise of cultural workers. And I draw on uh, work from science and technology studies, such as Latour and Woolgar, who describe how knowledge is produced through social relations. So if we think about this in relation to expert figures, they are recognised as experts and therefore as a potentially powerful and authoritative figure as a result of social processes. So, for example, their expertise getting recognised or others attributing them the label of expert. And this informs the understanding of expertise in the book as something which is developed through various practices and power relations. And also, though, I think it involves individual agency, particularly on the part of the, the creative worker. So uh, that element of it is informed by uh, a bit of art history, particularly the work of Paul Oscar Cristella and Martha Woodmansey, who consider the production of art as a practice which can be taught and learned, not the product of innate talent or genius. And they um, describe how in ancient Greece and during the Renaissance, art was considered to be a practical still, a skill that's re- almost related to craft, something you can learn with your hands. And this informs my understanding of aesthetic expertise in creation as something that's fluid, developed over time, involving mastery and skill. Audrey's description of artistic competence is also helpful for me here. And he said it can be measured by, to quote, the degree to which he or she masters the set of instruments for the appropriation of the work of art available at a given time. So Bourdieu acknowledged mastery and the practical knowledge and skill which defined aesthetic expertise in in artistic creation. Uh, as pointed out by Christella and Woodmansey, and I find that quite relevant for understanding it in this book. So uh, my understanding of aesthetic expertise involves a knowledge of aesthetic codes and classifications and skill in mastering the tools and techniques to produce a work of aesthetic value that is recognised and legitimated as such. So it takes into account the skill and knowledge which goes into the production of a cultural object but also the need for recognition, which, as Borgia shows us, is also linked to power. And I was also really interested all the way through the the role of social media in cultural work. So uh, drawing on the work of Candace Jones, I designed a framework to qualitatively analyse how expertise is signalled on social media. So Jones's idea of signalling expertise was really influential for my approach as well to start thinking about expertise in creative work as something of creators and something that isn't necessarily bureaucratic, but is dynamic in flux, which can be developed over time, but dependent on access to resources. And that's something I argue all the way through. So um, signalling expertise uh, is communicating your credentials, basically, And Candace Jones used the framework to conceptualise how expertise is signalled by cultural workers, in her case, film and TV, to secure work as part of portfolio careers and project work. 
And the idea of signaling in her work is quite abstract. So I adapted that framework to uh, turn it into a qualitative framework to analyse how artists signal expertise on social media. So the framework looks at uh, individual context, which you can get from the artist's position and status, signaling content, so the actual social media posts, the presence online, and uh, signaling strategies, such as the types of networks that they engage in, their strategies for self-promotion, and so on. So there's a methodological uh, addition there. So the aim of the book really is to get scholars in creative industries and cultural policy to think through what expertise is, how it relates to power, and what it looks like beyond that, that sort of common idea of the expert figure who's usually white, male, middle class, and very well educated and usually wearing a suit. Yeah, I mean, th- this is where the inequality stuff um, really comes through, and particularly your comments about kind of different levels of uh, resources and, and the sort of work people have to do um, around not just social media, but, you know, kind of um, their community building as well as their, their kind of creative practice. And, and I guess if you've introduced the, um, the theoretical framework there and, and kind of highlighted some of the issues and, and themes the book grapples with, we, we can make that really concrete by thinking about some of the stories of the individuals. Um, and, and I, I picked out, as you do in the book, um, a couple of, of stories. And I guess one place to start is, is with social media and why social media is, is important. And, and you introduce um, one of your participants, Colin, um, as a good example of the kind of the labour of social media, but also its importance to the contemporary cultural worker. Yeah, so Colin was... Um... I introduce him in chapter three, along with all of the other participants um, in the book. And Colin was an exemplar of someone who had the sort of um, dream sort of route into a creative career and has been able to build his expertise and mobilise his expertise and get recognised as an expert at what he does. And he was the most successful person uh, out of everyone that I interviewed and he's the main reference point in chapter three the main story running through and I point out that while he is an exemplar his his level and his story is incredibly rare the fact that he's a white man who was able to move to London study and then go straight into a creative job in the West End the chances of that happening now especially if you're from a working class background and or a woman and or are black, are pretty much zero. Um, The brilliant work um, that you've done with um, Ian Brooke and Mark Taylor highlights that as well. Uh, Colin even said in interview that he fell into his creative career, which sort of goes against the idea that the cultural industries are meritocratic, uh, which is the work of Joe Littler, for example, shows is, is pretty much not the case anyway. So in terms of social media, the book uh, really highlights the centrality of social media platforms to the daily routines of these cultural workers, the time it takes to plan and compose posts, respond to comments and messages, takes a lot out of the day and takes a level of additional work, which isn't really acknowledged in 
more recent work on cultural labour, the demands of social media at the moment um, seem sort of separated off in the literature on social media. Uh, the work of Brooke Duffy is an exception to that. She conceptualises social media use as a form of cultural work and a part of cultural labour, which is uh, useful for my thinking throughout this book. So Colin is a, a good example of someone who's not only built a good level of aesthetic expertise, but he can also signal that successfully online. So in an interview, he told me how he um, uses social media every day. He's really into checking engagement and metrics and statistics. He um, is happy to share uh, his work in progress, take pictures of his work as he's going along and more than happy to talk about the process. He's uh, He had a good network in the first place, I, I think, even before he uh, began using social media seriously for his practice. And he's been able to build that up over the years, engaging with his followers and customers. Um, and all of this helps to consolidate his status as a, a prominent fine artist who has attracted some high profile commissions. Um, he's been commissioned by uh, an A-list Hollywood celebrity to do uh, a portrait. Uh, she's based in the USA. I'm not going to say who she is because <laughs> I'm allowed. But uh, yeah, he's he's a he was the sort of shining example of expertise, but also an example of um, the, the sort of privileges that he had that enabled him to get to that position in the first place. Now, she's not a direct contrast with him because, in some ways, she has her own uh, kind of sets of, of resources, but. Um, I was interested in, in, in Gillian, um, who is someone um, who you use, I think, to illustrate the kind of the blurred boundaries of, of both life um, and, and work that's, that's really crucial to understanding um, creative workers and social media. But also, and someone actually who, who I got the impression was, was very good um, at this kind of signaling of expertise um, and also has some excellent cat pictures um, throughout that, <laughs> that chapter but I guess someone um, who has to do who, who's maybe you know labor is less effortless you know who like clearly had uh, I suppose you know more of, of of the kind of the work of crafting this um, this kind of presence um, and this sense um, of brand and, and sort of personal niche on social media in, in contrast, I guess, to the kind of that ease of which Colin had found his career trajectory. Yes, definitely. So for me, Gillian is someone who is a great example of how social media can lower the barriers to uh, a creative career in many ways. Um, but the, the opening quote of Chapter 4 is um, from Gillian, and it, she's outlining her social media strategy and you just get a sense of the sheer work that she puts in every day, the planning she puts into it, the, and she thinks about the different types of posts she creates, what she avoids. She says she doesn't like sales or spam posts. And she was the only one whose creative career depended entirely on social media. She said without social media, she wouldn't make any money she wouldn't have been able to, to do what she's doing, which is uh, a portrait artist, mainly a pet portrait artist, uh, 
into the pictures of, of cats. So G- Julian knew social media was really important. So when she decided she wanted to sell her work, sell her portraits, get commissions, she took uh, social media courses, made notes in binders, reviewed her plan regularly with her husband and dedicated time each day to social media. She'd get up at 7 a.m. and spend those two spend about two hours planning out her posts for the day and scheduling them for the uh, and then it's there it's done and then she'd uh, have the rest of the day to do her actual uh, creation um often checking social media during breaks replying to posts and comments so it really um it, it's just there throughout her day social media and um it was it's been really successful for her at the time of interview. She became so successful that her husband could leave his job and look after the kids, and she could work full time on her art in in her basement. So she's a real success story in in this. So um, in in the chapter four, I talk about staging expertise, and I highlight three ways in which. The cultural workers employ sta- those strategies of staging, to use uh, Goffman's term. And they do this to signal expertise, but also to manage their reputation. And in some cases, manage those uh, boundaries or sort of blurred boundaries between work and home life. So the way Gillian staged herself was through sharing images of her cats. So uh, she posted on Facebook an image of her, her cat in the sink So it's not the type of post that you'd think is directly linked to sales. It's not a very businessy post, but it makes Gillian appear personable and relatable to her customers who are probably also pet lovers because most of her commissions are from our pet portraits. And it's a strategy to get likes and engagement, but also some effective investment too from her followers who might be looking forward to seeing where the cat will end up next even if they're not uh, planning to have a, a commission from her anytime soon, that they've got a level of um, effective investment there. So I say that Julian is, is sharing the, the backstage of her home life, what she does when she's not creating. And Julian also stages her work really well. She, she Like college, she shares work in progress, which for her as someone who just directly sells to customers it allows her to manage expectations provide her customers with an update on their commission but it also signals her aesthetic expertise in realist art Gillian she didn't have a formal arts education which is why social media is ostensibly her route to a cultural work career so sharing work in progress and being able to share aspects of the processes uh, I argue in the book quite a strong signal of aesthetic expertise. The amount of work that you've mentioned uh, that's, that's kind of necessary to get this this done, I suppose, like hints at the kind of downsides. Um, and, you know, it's not just labour, but, you know, the kind of having to have a presence, having to share, um, thinking about metrics, you know, thinking about how you're like, curating your presence what what are some of the kind of I guess the the downsides because obviously that leads us in to think about um, how these downsides are not uh, shared and experienced equally yeah definitely so 
Uh, in chapter five, I talk about the act of signalling expertise on social media as a form of cultural labour. And I talk about the pressure to presence, which is one of the major downsides that I, I found during the interviews, which I'm sure many people could also relate to, um, that, that idea of maintaining your online presence, keeping it up to date, being on so many different platforms, um, just fitting it all in can be really difficult. And uh, for this, I draw on Nick Caldry's idea of presencing, which is uh, what he describes as an emerging requirement in everyday life to have a public presence beyond uh, your own pre bodily presence. So that sort of online presence is always there working for you, uh, even when you're offline. Um, your posts are being shared, commented, liked. People are looking at, at you, at what you're doing. And um, that that adds a lot of pressure to to cultural workers, to the cultural workers in this book. And um, I talk to in that chapter, I reference Antonio quite a lot. who was very uh, digitally savvy. He's um, he's an early adopter. He's a digital artist, and he talked quite negatively about social media quite a lot. But he said, "I'm always on the internet. I'm always." On social media scrolling, I can't help it. And um, when we talked about the role of social media in his work, he, he talked about being seen to be doing something. So he felt like often he would just have to post something, anything work-related. And he called it part of the cult of being busy and being productive. And um, Melissa Gregg has... Uh, her recent book about productivity um, speaks to that as well. And Antonio said he, because he's digital art, um, a lot of the art he creates to put online, his art is already digitally native. So he said he was increasingly creating art just to put on social media, but he had concerns. He said, uh, you know, I keep posting this work and what's the point when if I just end up posting crap art, to use his uh, his words, just to keep his presence up to date. So doing that risks his reputation and the signals of expertise and, and is a big consideration for cultural workers. Um, how, how do you balance that need to keep your presence up to date with uh, sharing aspects of your work? And what happens if you can't create as well? Um, another participant, Patrick, he said that posting on social media is like taking tablets in the morning. If you don't do it, you, you just don't feel quite right. And um, he, he, like Gillian, used a lot of scheduling software to help him keep on top of it all. And I also discuss other things that cultural workers did, which take time of, out of their day and help them address that pressure to presence, such as uh, displaying recognition and sharing endorsements to enhance their reputation. So rather than uh, sharing work or crap art, um, maybe share something nice someone said about you, an endorsement, uh, a positive testimonial. So that's an example of a strategy some cultural workers use to keep that presence up to date without um, having to put pressure on yourself to create work for that online presence. 
Yeah, I mean, that's something that, that comes slightly later in the book is this idea of kind of um, strategies of resistance, strategies of support, you know, kind of community building. And I guess <coughs> maybe we could, we could think about two things there is one, what are these kind of uh, strategies and, and examples, but also like what are they in resistance to? And I guess that's where um, inequalities are, are really central to your analysis. Yes. So the later chapters of the book focus on the women artists in the um, in in the research because um, during the course of it, I really um, picked up on gender inequality in the art world, and I identified that for women, there's arguably a lot more pressure on social media. Uh, women artists face so much more abuse and scrutiny than men. And I argue that, that that's an additional pressure for women artists in particular. And in, in Chapter 6, I talk about perfection and imperfection, drawing on Angela McRobbie's work on The Perfect, how social media calls on women to be looked at, demanding that perfect online presentation. And that's additional labour, which... Um, Men artists, by, male artists by and large, don't really have to think about. Um, of course, there, there will be exceptions there. So for the, for the women in my research, I found um, that rather than self-promote uh, as blatantly um, as one would think entrepreneurs need to on social media, they quite often prefer to share the work of others, uh, other women, in particular, so uh, I take the example of Lisa, who is a, a writer, and she was part of this anthology uh, that was available on Amazon. And rather than posting uh, a link to her contribution to this anthology, she shared a chapter by someone else. And I found that quite interesting that she wasn't promoting herself and this reticence to self-promote was was evident throughout from the women, you know, from Gillian saying she does it like salesy posts. And uh, I sort of conceptualise what these women were doing, sharing the work of others, facilitating that sort of reciprocal sharing, um, returning the favour from other women um, and that sort of collective community uh, which Lisa really benefited from she said that she really loved uh, the community that she's been building on social media she uh, lives in a rural area she wouldn't really be able to meet up with people and um, she found that really beneficial and I conceptualize this uh, through the idea of mutual aid uh, by Depota and Cohen to, um, and they use it to sort of describe the bottom-up infrastructures to support independent work. And they show how by working together, cultural workers have uh, increased powers for collective bargaining. And I thought this was a useful idea for thinking about the activities of the women cultural workers that I looked at, which uh, can, I say in the book, contribute towards gendered strategies for signaling aesthetic expertise. So. The Depoiter and Cohen talk about mutual aid in relation to worker labour struggles, 
I use it to refer to women's struggle for recognition and equality in cultural work. So, um, for example, the uh, anthology that Lisa used um, was useful for her. And I also talk about um, in a section called Wine, Cake and Cats, again, cats, um, as a way for women to form bonds with each other on lights or sharing pictures of your cat, sharing pictures of uh, a nice bottle of wine on a Friday night when you've been working hard all week. Those are ways for the women to get other women to relate to them and create those bonds online, create that effective investment um, so that other women might not necessarily buy their work, but it creates that community, which I argue could, could potentially facilitate uh, a, a greater raising of visibility of women artists online. But it's there, there are complications within that, in that the bonding icons such as wine, cake and cats can be exclusionary. I found that a lot of, the post exhibited quite a white um, middle-class taste, which can exclude people and make them feel like it's not for them. Um, so that is a consideration on social media with these types of strategies, which can, which can be a form of resistance to uh, inequalities in gender inequalities, but also exclude in other ways. What do you think the prospects are, um, I guess, in, in the kind of current moment? You know, the the book lays out um, both the practices, the inequalities, and also those strategies, those ambivalent strategies for uh, adaption and, and resistance really well. Um, and how do you think that's going to play out um, kind of in, in the future? You know, we, we've seen um, with the pandemic, like, uh, you know, a lot of people engage with social media, um, lots of, um, I guess, you know, kind of positive stories um, of, you know, success for artists, people in, in craft, but also, you know, collapse of particular industries, um, really, you know, a kind of industrial or economic disaster for, for parts of the arts. So, so I guess the question that comes and, and this is present in, in the conclusion is, what, what, what does the analysis tell us um, we're likely to see now? When, when I look back at the con- conclusion, it was it was quite hopeful. And uh, I think if I were to write that now, that wouldn't be the case. Um, it's obviously, as, as you've said, like parts of the arts are potentially going to be decimated. And I think... Um, there are opportunities, but also massive challenges with regards to this. Um, I've shown, I show in the book how social media can open up potential barriers to cultural work, and people like Gillian are a great example of how you can use social media to to make a career out of something you love, out of creation. And during the pandemic, um, the book was written before the pandemic, obviously. But I've seen during the pandemic that there are opportunities and, and hopeful ways in which people have been using social media to um, mobilise. Uh, Black Lives Matter was really important 
and uh, in the current work I'm doing on on craft inequalities in craft I'm really seeing some great I'm seeing a shift in the way um women and women of color are using social media to mo- so they're feeling more empowered to put themselves out there and mobilize and connect with each other in this moment which I think is really positive and um and 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 really um a point from which we could get gain some hope for the future but uh as I say in the conclusion um I argue for the idea that conceivably anyone can build aesthetic expertise and develop it everyone has some kind of um creative impulse and I argue that arguably anyone should be able to make a career out of that if they want. Um, there's a, an idea that social media could potentially uh, make that easier. In many cases it does, but I think in, for, for a lot of people it doesn't. It can be restrictive. Um, women and women of colour face a lot of abuse online and that's, that's not going to go away. Um, it's not going away at all and um so it's definitely um it's definitely not as not as simple as just going online and and planning out your posts especially not now so um I think the actions of the the women in this research and the the women that I'm working with now um it's encouraging in terms of online using social media to mobilize but also social media is hugely problematic um, the power that social media platforms has is it's just going unchecked. Um, online abuse is rife and they're doing, they're moving so slowly to do anything about it. And in terms of, um, I also talk about the digital divide as well, which I think is um, a big barrier. There, there will be a lot of people doing really good creative things. They would have developed their aesthetic expertise during lockdown no doubt, but a lot of a lot of their work would be not out there. It wouldn't be online because they don't have the means to get online. They don't they don't sort of think it's possible or that they can do it. So I say that um, there needs to be better skills provision in creative and digital. But this is obviously before everything that's happened, and now I think it's. Um, it's really important because your first impulse, as I think in any walk of life, when you are faced with such a huge crisis, is to sort of shrink back and not change the way you work, not address uh, problems such as uh, a lack of diverse representation on your board, um, a lack of diverse uh, creative workers in your workforce. Um, it's very easy to shrink back and, and that's a big danger. Um, and in terms of what I talk about in the conclusion as well with regards to expertise, I think there's an opportunity to address hierarchies of expertise in cultural work. So one of the main things I hope uh, I've done in this book is highlight that anyone could be an expert in creation. Anyone could develop that expertise. and I think those uh, pathways into a cultural work career uh, should be opened up. And um, I think there's a lot more that could be done to examine expertise in cultural work and how it works. And 
the sort of opportunities, uh, the theoretical opportunities it might present for thinking about uh, a, a cultural sector that is more inclusive 